nudge. Improving decisions about health, wealth, and happiness. By Richard H. Thaler and Cass R. Sunstein. Narrated by Lloyd James. Credit cards. The credit card is a ubiquitous feature of modern life. It is nearly impossible to function in society without one. Try checking into a hotel, renting a car, or renting a set of golf clubs without a credit card. Good luck. Credit cards serve two functions. First, they provide a mode of payment in lieu of cash, and have largely replaced checks for that purpose in face-to-face -face transactions, thankfully, although occasionally you still get stuck behind someone in a grocery store checkout line who wants to write a check for a $7.37 purchase. The second purpose of a credit card is to provide a ready source of liquidity if you want to spend more than you currently have in cash. Debit cards, which look just like cards, serve only the first function, because they are linked to a bank account and do not allow for borrowing unless linked also to a line of credit. Warning, some debit cards offer lines of credit at high fees. If you use a debit card to borrow, you should make sure that the fees you pay are lower than they would be with a credit card. Credit cards are blessedly convenient. Paying with a credit card is often faster than paying with cash and lets you avoid struggling with change. Digging into your pocket to find the correct change and managing the large jar of pennies at home are vexations from which you are liberated. Not to mention the frequent flyer miles. But if you are not careful, credit cards can be addicting. Consider these numbers. The Census Bureau reported that there were more than 1.4 billion credit cards in 2004 for 164 million cardholders, an average of 8.5 cards per cardholder. Currently, 115 million Americans carry a month-to-month -month credit card debt. In 1989, the average American family owed its credit card companies $2,697. By 2007, that number had grown to about $8,000. And these figures are probably too low because they are generally self-reported. Using Federal Reserve data, some researchers suggest that American households may have an average credit card debt of $12,000. At typical interest rates of 18% a year, that translates into more than $2,000 a year in interest payments alone. Looking back at the problems of self-control discussed in Chapter 3, we can see how credit cards create serious problems for some people. In the pre-credit card era, households were pretty much forced to use a pay-as-you-go accounting system. That is why people used jars of money labeled according to purpose or payee. Now, if you don't have the cash to fill your car up with gas, there is always your credit card. Credit cards inhibit self-control in other ways. One 2001 study by Drazen Prelek and Duncan Simister found that people were willing to pay twice as much to bid on tickets to a Boston Celtics basketball game if they could pay with their credit card rather than cash. There is no telling how much money people pay with the cards in order to get those precious frequent flyer miles. And when the spending limit on one card is reached, there is always another card to use, 
or a new account to be opened using one of the solicitations that arrive almost daily in the mail, announcing that you have been pre-approved. Can libertarian paternalism help? As with mortgages, we think this is a perfect area for recap. We suggest that credit card companies should be required to send an annual statement, both hard copy and electronic, that lists and totals all the fees that have been incurred over the course of the year. This report would serve two purposes. First, credit card users could use the electronic version of the report to shop for better deals. By knowing their precise usage and fee payments, customers would get a better sense of what they are paying for. Here is one example. One way credit card companies have slyly raised prices is by reducing the number of days you have between the time you get your bill and the day your payment is due. If you miss that payment, you not only pay a penalty, but you also pay interest on all the purchases you make next month, even if you normally pay off your bill in full. For a heavy credit card user, such as a frequent business traveler, missing a $5,000 payment by one day can result in an extra payment of more than $100. Second, the report would make more salient to users just how much they are paying over the course of the year. Some credit cards now issue an annual summary of purchases listed by category, which can help for tax preparation. But the recap requirement would force the card issuers to include information on their own fees in this document. Often those fees are hidden. For example, if you make a purchase in a foreign currency, the credit card company tax on a fee for converting the purchase into dollars, something that costs banks virtually nothing. On your recap statement, you would be told how much you paid for the privilege of using your card on your vacation to Mexico. Because interest on credit cards is not deductible, there is no particular reason for users to check how much they paid in interest last year on all their credit cards, and fees are likely to be buried and ignored altogether. Imagine the wake-up call for a credit card user who was told that over the past year he paid $2,153 in interest, $247 in late fees, and $57 in currency transaction fees. Some other nudges could help as well. For example, credit cards always mention the minimum payment you can make when you receive your monthly bill. This can serve as an anchor and as a nudge that this minimum payment is an appropriate amount. Similarly, credit card limits, which are nominally in place to limit spending, may serve as high anchors that actually encourage spending. Of course, because the minimum payments are tiny relative to the total bill, paying this amount just maximizes the interest payments over time. Credit card companies even make it hard to commit yourself to paying the card off in full each month. Try to set up an automatic payment feature with your credit card and your bank. Chances are the only default option offered is to pay the minimum payment, not the entire bill. We think that companies should be required to allow automatic payment of the full bill. We have covered a number of topics in this chapter, but the unifying message is simple. For mortgages, school loans, and credit cards, life is far more complicated than it needs to be, and people can be exploited. Often, it's best to ask people to take care of themselves, 
But when people borrow, standard human frailties can lead to serious hardship and even disaster. Here, as elsewhere, government should respect freedom of choice, but with a few improvements in choice architecture, people would be far less likely to choose badly. Chapter 9 Privatizing Social Security, Smorgasbord Style In the 2000 U.S. presidential campaign, George W. Bush called for a partial privatization of the Social Security system. According to his plan, a portion of the payroll tax would be designated for individual savings accounts. At the same time that this issue was being debated in the United States, Sweden was launching a system similar to President Bush's proposal. Although Bush's plan did not get much attention in the early years of his administration, it resurfaced prominently in 2005. Though it failed in Congress, some version of this proposal is likely to be considered again before long, either in the United States or in other countries. Important lessons can be learned from the Swedish experience. Lessons, above all, about the limitations of any simple celebration of freedom of choice. We shall see that Sweden's officials did quite well on some aspects of their choice architecture, but made at least one important error that led its citizens to choose portfolios that are not nearly as good as they could have been. A better set of nudges would have helped. By understanding why, we can learn a lot about Social Security reform and about much else besides. Design of the Swedish Privatization Plan if we were to pick a single phrase to characterize the design of the Swedish plan, it would be pro-choice. In fact, the plan is a good example of the just-maximize-choices strategy. Give people as many options as possible, and then let them do whatever they want. At almost every stage, the designers opted for a laissez-faire approach. In particular, the plan had the following key features. 1. Participants were allowed to form their own portfolios by selecting up to five funds from an approved list. 2. One fund was chosen, with some care, to be a default fund for anyone who, for whatever reason, did not make an active choice. 3. Participants were encouraged, via a massive advertising campaign, to choose their own portfolios, rather than rely on the default fund. 4. Any fund meeting certain fiduciary standards was allowed to enter the system. Thus, market entry determined the mix of funds from which participants could choose. As a result of this process, there were initially 456 available funds. As of August 14, 2007, there were 783 funds in the plan. But since inception, there have been more than 1,000 so some funds come and go rather rapidly. 5. Information about the funds, including fees, past performance, and risk, was provided in book form to all participants. And finally, 6. Funds, except for the default fund, were permitted to advertise to attract money. If Swedish citizens were all econs, None of these design choices would be controversial. The combination of free entry, 
unfettered competition, and lots of choices seems great. But if Swedes are humans, then maximizing choice may not lead to the best possible outcome. As it turns out, it didn't. The Default Fund There are two sets of issues relating to the default fund. What should be in the portfolio, and what status should it get from the government? That is, does the government want to encourage people to take up the fund, to discourage them from doing so, or what? Here are a few of the many possible options that might have been selected. A. Participants are given no choice. The default fund is the only fund offered. B. A default is picked, but its selection is discouraged. C. A default is picked, and its selection is encouraged. D. A default is picked, and its selection is neither encouraged nor discouraged. And E. Required choosing. There is no default option. Participants must make an active choice, or they forfeit their contributions. Which of these would a good choice architect select? That depends on the architect's level of confidence in the ability and willingness of the participants to do a good job of choosing portfolios on their own. Option A is hardly a nudge. It eliminates all choice, and so is inconsistent with libertarian paternalism. We don't recommend it. At the other extreme, plan designers could avoid picking a default fund entirely by forcing everyone to choose a portfolio for themselves. Option E required choosing. If the designers are confident that people will do a good job picking portfolios for themselves, then they might consider this policy. Although required choosing can be attractive in some domains, we think that the Swedish government was right not to insist on it in this particular setting. Inevitably, some participants will fail to respond to attempts to reach them. Maybe because they are out of the country, ill, preoccupied, unable to communicate, or just clueless. Cutting such people off from all benefits is harsh and probably unacceptable as a matter of politics or principle. In any case, it isn't easy to choose among more than 400 funds. Why should a government force its citizens to make that choice when some would prefer to rely on what experts say, as captured in the default. So we are left with the three middle options. If we are to have a default option as well as other choices, should we encourage or discourage its use? Clearly there is a wide variety of choices along the continuum, from strongly discouraging the default to strongly encouraging it. What's best? Option D has obvious appeal. Simply designate a default, but neither encourage nor discourage it. But it is an illusion to think that this alternative fully solves the problem. What does it mean to be neutral? If we notify people that the plan was designed by experts and has low fees, both true about the actual default chosen, does this constitute encouragement? We don't mean to split hairs here. Our point is simply that designers will have to make a decision about how to describe the default plan, and these decisions will help determine the market share this plan attracts. In analyzing the middle options, we need to know something about the competence of those who design the default, and the competence and diversity of those 
who might depart from it. If the designers are terrific, if the default fits all, and if the choosers are likely to blunder, then it might make sense to encourage people to select the default. If the designers are essentially guessing, if the choosers know a lot, and if the situations of different choosers are relevantly different, then it might be best to err on the side of official neutrality. In any case, the Swedish plan adopted a version of Plan B. Participants were actively encouraged to choose their own portfolios via an extensive advertising campaign. This advertising effort seems to have had the desired effect because two-thirds of participants did select portfolios on their own. Participants were more likely to make active choices if they had more money at stake and, holding money constant, women and younger participants were more likely to make active choices. We have a theory about why women were more likely to make active choices. We think that women were less likely to lose the enrollment forms and more likely to remember to mail them in. We admit to having no data to support this theory and plead guilty to the possibility that we are being overly influenced via the availability of bias by the fact that our significant others are considerably more organized than we are. Of course, one-third of the participants ended up with a default fund, and that figure might well seem high. It was, in fact, the largest market share of any fund. But the government campaigned hard to get people to choose actively, and a sense of the impact of the campaign can be inferred by what has occurred in the years since the plan was started. The upshot is that as the government's campaign diminished in intensity, people became significantly less likely to choose their own portfolios. Here are a few details. When the plan was launched in the spring of 2000, every participant who was then in the workforce was asked to choose a portfolio. In the years following the launch, new workers, mostly young people, have joined the plan, and they were also asked to choose a portfolio. But soon after the initial enrollment period, the government ended its advertising campaign, encouraging participants to make an active choice. Moreover, private funds themselves greatly reduced their advertising aimed at attracting investments. Probably as a result of both of these factors, the proportion of people choosing their own portfolios fell as well. For those workers joining the plan in April 2006, the most recent enrollment period for which we have data, only 8% selected their own portfolios. In fact, the purchase of active choosers has declined steadily, from 17.6% in 2001, the first year after the launch. Because these new participants are primarily young workers, this percentage is most usefully compared with that of workers who were under age 22 when the plan was launched in 2000. That group chose their own portfolios 56.7% of the time in 2000, much more than now. Did active choosers make good choices? Were people made better off by choosing their own portfolios? Of course, we do not have any way of knowing the preferences of individual participants. And we also do not know what assets they may be holding outside the social security system. So it is not possible for us to say anything definitive about how good a job they did picking a portfolio. 
but we can nonetheless learn a lot by comparing the portfolios people actively constructed with a default fund on dimensions that sensible investors should value, such as fees, risk, and performance. To make a long story short, the active choosers didn't do so great. The default fund appears to have been chosen with some care. The asset allocation is 65% foreign, that is non-Swedish, stocks, 17% Swedish stocks, 10% fixed income securities, bonds, 4% hedge funds, and 4% private equity. Across all asset classes, 60% of the funds are managed passively, meaning that the portfolio managers are simply buying an index of stocks and not trying to beat the market. One good thing about index funds is that they are cheap. The fees they charge investors are much lower than those charged by funds that try to beat the market. Those low fees for the index funds help keep the costs in the default fund very low, 0.17%. This means that for every $100 invested, the investor is charged 17 cents per year. Overall, most experts would consider this fund to be very well designed. To see how the active choosers did as a group, we can examine the comparable figures for the aggregate portfolio selected initially by the participants who made their own choices. There are three points of interest in this comparison. First, although the allocation to stocks in the default plan was quite high, it is even higher in the portfolios actively chosen, 96.2%. People probably chose to invest so heavily in stocks because the stock market had been booming for the previous few years. Second, the active choosers selected to invest nearly half of their money, 48.2%, in the stocks of Swedish companies. This reflects the well-known tendency of investors to buy stocks from their home country, something that economists refer to as the home bias. Of course, you might think that investing at home makes sense. Buy what you know. But when it comes to investing, buying what you think you know does not necessarily make sense. As we saw in the previous chapter, employees buying shares of the company for which they work show no ability to make profitable trading decisions. Consider the following fact. Sweden accounts for approximately 1% of the world economy. A rational investor in the United States or Japan would invest about 1% of his assets in Swedish stocks. Can it make sense for Swedish investors to invest 48 times more? No. If you are worried about currency risk, that's a problem easily solved. And in fact, the default fund did solve it by hedging in the currency markets, essentially a type of insurance. Third, only 4.1% of the funds in the selected portfolios were indexed. As a result, the fees paid by the active choosers are much higher, 0.77% compared with the 0.17% charged by the default fund. This means that if two people invested $10,000 each, the active investor is paying $60 a year more in fees than the one who took the default portfolio. Over time, these fees add up. The fees we report here are the ones that were advertised. Later, some funds offered discounts, so fees fell. 
In summary, those who selected portfolios for themselves selected a higher equity exposure, more active management, much more local concentration, and higher fees. At the time these investments were made, it would have been hard to make the case that the actively selected portfolios were better investments than the default fund. And although a few years of returns do not prove anything, not only was the default fund designed better at the start, but it has also performed better. Because of the decline in the market that followed the launch of this plan, investors did not do well for the first three years, from October 31, 2000 through October 31, 2003. But those who invested in the default fund suffered less. The default fund lost 29.9% in those three years, while the average portfolio of those participants who picked their funds actively lost 39.6%. In subsequent years, the default fund has continued to outperform people's choices. Through July 2007, the default fund is up 21.5%, while the average actively managed portfolio is up only 5.1%. Indeed, the performance of the default fund has been so good over this period that the fund rating service, Morningstar, has given the fund its highest five-star rating, compared with other global funds since 2003. In contrast, the aggregate portfolio selected by participants would probably have received three stars if it were considered a single global fund. An interesting feature of the Swedish experience is that the launch of the fund occurred just as the bull market in stocks and the bubble in technology stocks was ending. Although it is impossible to specify the precise effect of this accident of timing on people's choices, or even on the decision to launch the privatization program, the data provides some strong hints. We have already noted that the actively chosen portfolios had more than 96% of their money in stocks. Had the launch occurred just two years later, the proportion invested in stocks would almost certainly have been lower. As we saw in Chapter 8, individual investors tend to be trend followers rather than good forecasters in their asset allocation decisions. In a period in which technology stocks had been soaring, it is not surprising that the investments were also tilted toward those stocks. To give one illustrative example, the fund that attracted the largest market share, aside from the default fund, was Robar Actifond Contura, which received 4.2% of the investment pool. This is a huge market share. Keep in mind that there were 456 funds, and that one-third of the money went into the default fund. Robar Actifund Contura invested primarily in technology and healthcare stocks in Sweden and elsewhere. Over the five-year period leading up to the choice, its value increased by 534.2%, the highest of all the funds in the pool. In the first three years after the launch of this program, it lost 69.5% of its value. In the subsequent three years, the returns have continued to be volatile. In retrospect, it cannot be a surprise that a fund like Robar Actifond Contura would get a large percentage of the investments in the pool. Think about what people are being asked to do. They receive a book that lists the returns 
for 456 funds over various time horizons, along with a lot of other important information, involving fees and risk, that they are not well equipped to understand. The one thing they are probably sure of is that high returns are good. Of course, these are past returns, but investors have traditionally had trouble distinguishing between past returns and forecasts of future returns. We can't help but imagine the following conversation going on over a kitchen table somewhere in Sweden between Mr. and Ms. Svensson. Mr. Svensson. Wilma, what are you doing with that book? Ms. Svensson. I am looking for the best fund to invest in, Bjorn, and I think I just found it. Robar Actifon Contura is the winner. It is up 534% over the past five years. If we invest in this, we can retire to Mallorca. Mr. Svensson. Yeah, whatever. Can you pass the gravlocks? Because the investments of participants are influenced by recent returns, the timing of the launch of the program can have a strong impact on people's choices. This effect can be long-lasting because only a tiny percentage of participants decide to alter their portfolios. Status quo bias is alive and well in Sweden. In the first three years, the percentage of participants who made at least one change to their portfolios during the year was only 1.7, 2.7, and 3.1, respectively. This is similar to the inertia found in U.S. 401k plans. The combination of undue attention paid to recent returns and inertia in managing the portfolio thereafter means that the accident of timing, when the new system is launched, can end up having a profound impact on the investments that participants choose. In fact, accident of timing may be the wrong phrase, because a privatization plan seems most likely to be approved after a long bull market. Witness the decline in political support for the Bush plan after the bear market of 2001 and 2002. Political judgments, no less than investment decisions, can be driven by recent, available events. Advertising The decision to allow funds to advertise does not seem particularly controversial. In fact, given the rest of the design of this system, it is hard to imagine an advertising ban. If funds are free to enter this market then presumably they should be free to court customers by all legal means, which naturally include truthful advertising. Still, it is interesting to see what effect advertising had on this market. What should we expect? Consider two extreme dream scenarios. In the first dream, one being dreamt by a free market economist with a peaceful smile on his face, Advertisers are helping to educate consumers by explaining the benefits of lower costs, diversification, and long-run investing, as well as the folly of extrapolating recent returns into the future. In this dream, ads help each consumer discover her own ideal location on what economists call the efficient frontier, the place all rational investors want to find. In other words, the advertising helps consumers make better, smarter choices. The other dream is more of a nightmare, one that keeps psychologists and behavioral economists tossing and turning, 
In this dream, advertisers are encouraging participants to think big, not to settle for average by indexing, and to think of investing as a way to get rich. In this nightmare, ads almost never mention fees, but they do talk a lot about past performance, even though there is essentially no evidence that past performance predicts future performance. People who like to bet on sporting events will recognize a parallel and advertisements telling people about locks on upcoming games and about the amazing and nearly infallible forecasts of, say, the past three weeks. How did reality turn out? A typical ad showed the actor Harrison Ford of Star Wars and Indiana Jones fame plugging a Swedish fund company's products. According to the ad copy, Harrison Ford can help you pick a better pension. We are not sure which of Ford's roles qualifies him to provide this advice. We do know that Indiana Jones is depicted as a professor from the University of Chicago, but, alas, he was not in the business school or the economics department. More generally, a 2007 study by Henrik Kronkvist shows that the ads resembled the nightmare more than the happy dream. Only a small portion of fund advertising can be construed as directly informative about characteristics relevant for rational investors, such as funds' fees. And while funds heavily advertised past returns for those funds that had high returns, such ads in no way forecasted good future returns. Nevertheless, fund advertising did strongly affect investors' portfolio choices. It steered people into portfolios with lower expected returns because of higher fees and higher risk through a higher exposure to equities, more active management, more hot sectors, and more home bias. Doing Badly Without Nudges The tale of privatization of Social Security in Sweden is highly revealing. The basic problem is that government planners did not choose the best choice architecture. Instead, they relied on a kind of dogmatic commitment to the just maximize choices mantra in a way that led to predictable effects from availability bias and inertia. Better choice architecture could have helped. We have emphasized that on the key issue of choosing a default, the designers of the Swedish plan did an excellent job. The default plan was selected with care, and we think many people outside of Sweden would invest in the fund if it were available. This outcome belies the notion that governments are inherently incapable of doing anything right. The worst feature of the Swedish plan was the decision to encourage participants to choose their own portfolios. In complex situations, the government might actually be able to provide some useful hints. Recall a main lesson from Part 1. If the underlying decision is difficult and unfamiliar, and if people do not get prompt feedback when they err, then it's legitimate, even good, to nudge a bit. In this context, it would have been better for the government to say something like this. We have designed a program that has a comprehensive set of funds for you to choose from. If you do not feel comfortable making this decision on your own, you could consult with an expert, or you could choose the default fund that has been designed by experts for people like you. The Swedish government seems to agree with us, 
it no longer actively encourages people to choose their own portfolios. If the United States ever adopts similar partial privatization of its own social security system, whether as an alternative to or a substitute for the traditional system, many lessons can usefully be learned from the Swedish experience. Because the U.S. economy is more than 30 times as big as Sweden's, a similar free entry system would probably generate thousands of funds. This might make those who believe in the just maximize choices mantra happy, but most humans would find choosing from such a long list bewildering. A better plan would start by following Sweden's lead of choosing a good default plan, containing mostly indexed funds with managers selected by competitive bidding. Participants would then be guided through a simplified choice process, preferably on the web. The process would start with a yes or no question. Do you want the default fund? For those who said yes, their task would be done, though of course they could always change their minds at a later date. Those who rejected the default would be offered a small set of blended funds, perhaps based on the age of the participant, again privately managed with competitive fees. Only participants who rejected all of these funds would get to the comprehensive list. Evidence from the private sector suggests that few participants would make use of the big list, but their right to do so would be fully protected. An examination of the Swedish experience offers a much broader lesson. The more choices you give people, the more help you need to provide. As we will see, that is a lesson that the people who designed the Medicare prescription drug program did not learn. Part 3. Health Libertarian paternalists see countless opportunities for improving people's health. Social influences could obviously be enlisted if most people think that most people are starting to avoid unhealthy foods or to exercise, more people will avoid unhealthy foods and will exercise. As we have seen, people who know obese people are more likely to be obese themselves. Weight loss can be contagious too. Framing matters. People are more likely to engage in self-examinations for skin and breast cancer if they are told not about the reduced risk if they do so, but about the increased risk if they fail to do so. Doctors are crucial choice architects, and with an understanding of how humans think, they could do far more to improve people's health and thus to lengthen their lives. We focus on three particular problems here. The first raises complex questions of choice architecture. The federal government now has an extremely expensive prescription drug plan for seniors, one that operates on the familiar premise that government should give people a lot of choices and then get out of the way. As we will see, the resulting program has major problems, in part because many people are unable to understand it. The second problem is the simplest. The United States could save a lot of lives if more people donated their organs. How can donation rates be increased? You will not be stunned to hear that a switch in the default rule would have a major impact. The third problem includes human health but extends even more broadly. What can be done to protect the environment?
Nudges are not enough, but an understanding of their power offers some fresh answers to that question. Chapter 10 Prescription Drugs Part D for Daunting Prescription drug coverage was a hot topic during the 2000 presidential campaign. As a solution, Democrat Al Gore proposed a classic government mandate. Gore wanted to add prescription drug coverage to Medicare in a single plan, assemble a panel of medical experts to work out the specifics, and offer the package to all seniors. Republican George W. Bush, in contrast, offered what might be considered a good example of the theme of his campaign, compassionate conservatism. Indeed, Bush tried to combine compassionate conservatism with a major role for free markets in the private sector. He offered seniors an expensive new entitlement program, but one that featured a wide variety of drug plans devised by private healthcare companies and that let consumers choose whether to join and which plan to pick. Three years later, President Bush's version passed on a narrow vote in Congress. The largest overhaul in Medicare's history, Bush's plan created a half-trillion-dollar federal subsidy for prescription drug coverage called Part D. The reason why we felt it was necessary to provide choices is because we want the system to meet the needs of the consumer, President Bush told a clubhouse of Florida seniors in 2006 with the plan's rollout underway. The more choices you have, the more likely it is you'll be able to find a program that suits your specific needs. In other words, one-size-fits-all is not a consumer-friendly program. And I believe in consumers. I believe in trusting people. President Bush's trust in American seniors left them with a great deal of decision-making responsibility. But this was no laissez-faire system. The national government imposed a lot of structure. Before consumers could even begin to choose, the government set minimum coverage requirements and approved all private plans. This system of constrained free choice might seem like a nice example of libertarian paternalism in action. And in fact, we think that on some dimensions, Bush was on the right track. As a healthcare delivery system, Part D met its planner's expectations reasonably well. As a piece of choice architecture, however, it suffered from a cumbersome design that impeded good decision making. It offered a menu with lots of choices, which is fine, but it had four major defects. One, it gave participants little guidance to help them make the best selections from that menu. Two, its default option for most seniors was non-enrollment. Three, it chose a default at random for six million people who were automatically enrolled, and it actively resisted efforts to match people and plans based on their prescription drug histories. And four, it failed to serve the most vulnerable population, specifically the poor and the poorly educated. Do not misunderstand. Part D has done a lot of good. Contrary to the charges of the critics, it has not been an unmitigated disaster. But there is plenty of room for better choice architecture. Our discussion in this chapter will be fairly detailed. It is difficult to understand the program and what is wrong with it without a sense of the key choices and where they went sour. 
But if the four defects are kept in mind, the forest will not be lost for the trees. Design of Medicare Part D Before Part D, about half of all American seniors, approximately 21 million, had some form of prescription drug coverage through private plans or a government source, such as the Department of Veterans Affairs. Government officials had high hopes of covering the rest through Part D. The working principle was to provide seniors with as many federally approved choices as possible. The result was a policy with six key features. 1. For most people, Part D is a voluntary plan. You benefit only if you enroll in it. An exception applies to 6.2 million low-income seniors and disabled people who were previously covered by Medicaid, the government medical insurance program for the poor. These two groups are supposed to choose from a subset of the private plans, namely the cheapest and most basic plans meeting certain benchmarks. In 2007, states had between 5 and 20 basic plans. Anyone who does not make an active choice is enrolled randomly into one of these plans. 2. The initial enrollment period ran from November 2005 to May 2006, with open enrollment periods at the end of every subsequent year. Seniors who do not enroll when they become eligible and who lack a comparable private plan face a penalty on their premiums for every month they delay. 3. Seniors can enroll in a standalone prescription drug plan or a joint Medicare prescription drug plan. Standalone plans are commonly purchased by individuals who already have separate health insurance coverage through traditional Medicare, a pension plan, or a private employer. Joint plans are for those enrolled in Medicare Advantage, a special series of privately operated plans, HMOs, PPOs, and private fee-for-service plans, that tend to provide more benefits than the traditional Medicare program, but limit doctor choice. 4. Plans differ across states, from 45 standalone plans in Alaska to 66 in West Virginia and Pennsylvania. Most states offer between 50 and 60 standalone plans and between 15 and 142 joint plans. The total number of available plans has increased since the law was enacted. 5. During the initial enrollment period, the government, with help from such groups as AARP, formerly known as the American Association for Retired People, in 1999 the organization shortened its name to remove the R word from its title, sponsored a $400 million public awareness campaign encouraging people to choose a plan. Medicare officials, including the Secretary of Health and Human Services, travel the country in a giant blue bus to promote the program. Companies also sent out their own advertisements. Currently, seniors are advised to rely on advice from people you know or trust, choose a plan you are already familiar with, or use a customized guide called the Medicare Prescription Drug Plan Finder on the Medicare website. And finally, six. Coverage starts with the first prescription a patient needs, but then stops for a while after the patient has spent a certain amount of money, only to start up again when another spending plateau is reached. In the popular press, this coverage gap is usually described as the donut hole. 
because we know well that discussion of the details of Plan D can cause dangerous headaches, even without any mention of the donut hole. We will consign any further discussion of this issue to the end notes. Let's just say that no economist would ever recommend an insurance policy with this feature. If the people eligible for these plans were econs, none of these design features would be a problem. If consumers are up to this task, then their choices will ensure that the plans and insurers that succeed in the market are the ones that meet their needs, writes the Nobel Prize winner Daniel McFadden, a University of California Berkeley economist who has studied Part D extensively. However, if many are confused or confounded, the market will not get the signals it needs to work satisfactorily. With so many complex plans to choose from, it should not be a huge surprise that seniors have had a difficult time sending the right signals. Confusion awaiting clarity. As the six-month window for enrolling in Part D was closing, people were struggling to sign up. Consider the experience of seniors in McAllen, Texas, known as the City of Palms. McAllen is a town of 100,000 people, located in the Rio Grande Valley near the Mexican border. A manufacturing hub for multinational corporations, McAllen is the kind of poor town, about one-fifth of the residents 65 and older live in poverty, that was intended to benefit hugely from Part D. To obtain those benefits, however, eligible residents first needed to wade through 47 prescription drug plans. Intellectually, the program is a good idea, said Dr. E. Linda Villarreal, a former president of the Hidalgo Star County Medical Society. But there's been total chaos and confusion among most of my patients who do not understand the system and how to work it. Ramiro Barrera, a co-owner of Richard's Pharmacy in Mission, said, The new Medicare program is a full-time job. We are swamped with requests for help from beneficiaries. The experience in McAllen was hardly unique. Seniors everywhere were confused. So were their doctors and pharmacists. Together, they overwhelmed Medicare hotlines set up to help people figure out the best plan for them. Critiquing Medicare Part D's complexity became so common that Saturday Night Live spoofed the maze of detail in a phony public service commercial. The commercial promised a simple and easy plan to tech-savvy seniors who had succeeded in completely mastering their computers, iPods, and satellite televisions. President Bush sympathized with the frustration, but said that the program would ultimately be worth the pain. I knew that when we laid out the idea of giving seniors choices, it would create a little confusion for some, he told the Florida seniors. I mean, after all, up to now, there hadn't been many choices in the system. And all of a sudden, for a senior who feels pretty good about things, here comes old George W., and all of a sudden, 46 choices pop up. How are seniors expected to handle all those choices? President Bush urged them to have patience and to turn to private institutions for assistance. We encouraged all kinds of people to help, he said. AARP is helping. NAACP is helping. Sons and daughters are helping. Faith-based programs are helping people sort through the programs 
to design a program that meets their needs. I readily concede some seniors have said, there are so many choices I don't think I want to participate. My advice is, there is plenty of help for you. The impulse here was commendable, but you have now read enough to know that offering people 46 choices and telling them to ask for help is likely to be about as good as no help at all. And in Medicare Part D's case, many of the groups meant to assist seniors were confused themselves. The confusion spread to medical professionals, who agreed with their patients that the number of plans in the current program bewildered everyone. Others, such as AARP, decided to go into the business of offering insurance plans, as well as giving advice about which plan to select, a pretty obvious conflict of interest. In the end, getting seniors into a plan turned out to be not the biggest problem. Organizations were ultimately successful at signing up large numbers of beneficiaries. As of January 2007, fewer than 10% of all Medicare beneficiaries, about 4 million people, had no drug coverage, either through Part D or an equivalent private plan. One quarter of those in the plan were probably healthy enough that they did not need to enroll immediately. Their participation, however, was crucial to Part D's survival because they helped to subsidize sick seniors. To federal health officials, the high enrollment was a sign of undeniable success. To this extent, freedom of choice has worked. A nice point for those who reject, as we do, the idea that one size fits all. Overall, seniors seem happy about the program, as they should be, because it provides them with an enormous government subsidy. Since the passage of the new Medicare law, disapproval of the program has steadily fallen, while approval has risen, in an apparent tribute to rapid learning over time. In November 2005, just as seniors were getting their first taste of 40-plus plans, half of 1,800 seniors surveyed had an unfavorable view of the program, compared with 28% who viewed it favorably. By November 2006, the unfavorable rating had fallen to 34%, while the favorable rating had risen to 42%. When asked about their own personal experiences, three out of four held a very or somewhat positive view of Part D. Seeing these patterns, a vigorous defender of Part D could claim that, as with any new program, participants underwent a sometimes painful educational process, but on the whole were ultimately satisfied with the plan they chose. Overwhelming majorities thought that they made good choices, though, for reasons to be developed shortly, we doubt that many had much basis for that evaluation. Of course, it is true that because of learning, once complicated choices become easier. But we think that there has been a lot less learning about Part D than a casual look suggests. For starters, the high enrollment rates were achieved in part because approximately two-thirds of seniors were easily or automatically enrolled through one of a variety of routes, employer or union plans, Medicaid, Veterans Affairs, or federal employee coverage, or the special, more comprehensive Medicare program known as Medicare Advantage. Advertising campaigns and media coverage certainly boosted awareness, but no one should read the statistics 
I conclude that 38 million seniors filled out a Part D application because the government asked them to do so. In addition, many people are still not enrolled in the program, even though it is clear that they should be. Four million uncovered Americans is a large number. And studies suggest that this group is probably dominated by poorly educated people living just above the poverty line, and thus not eligible for Medicaid. In addition, one quarter of the 13.2 million seniors eligible for a low-income subsidy, again, most of them poorly educated and living alone, did not take advantage of it. Because coverage for this last group is practically free when the subsidy is added in, 25% non-enrollment is disturbingly high. Even when people do elect to enroll, an abundance of choice can overwhelm them. Since the new Medicare law passed, seniors have consistently told interviewers that they find Part D dumbfounding. After a year of experience in the program, only about one in ten said it was working well and needed no real changes. In November 2006, once again, with a year of experience and knowledge, 73% of seniors said Part D was too complicated, and 60% agreed with the statement that an unnamed party, most likely the government, should select a handful of plans so seniors have an easier time choosing. The consensus of the medical community was even stronger. More than 90% of both doctors and pharmacists who had been bombarded with patient questions throughout the enrollment period agreed that the program was too complicated. These responses suggest that overall consumer satisfaction could be a lot higher with a better design. Complexity is the most glaring problem, but it is not the only one. In fact, two other pieces of Part D's choice architecture are just as puzzling. Random default plans for the most vulnerable. In the introduction, we discussed the options faced by cafeteria supervisor Carolyn. One of those options was to display food items at random. We said that this option could be considered fair-minded and principled, but that it would lead to unhealthy diets at some schools. The option didn't strike us as desirable because it unfairly penalized some students by inducing them to consume a diet consisting entirely of pizza, egg rolls, and ice cream. Still, this is the opinion the government adopted for six million of its poorest and sickest citizens. It automatically assigned each person who did not pick a plan on her own to a randomly chosen default plan with premiums at or below certain benchmarks for her specific region. As a result of plan restructuring, another 1.1 million people were eligible for random assignment in 2007. One state, Maine, shrewdly resisted this system in favor of an intelligent assignment process for 45,000 people. We will return to shrewd Maine shortly. For now, we focus on the other 49 states. The poorest and sickest enrollees are those people eligible for both Medicare and Medicaid, and so are called the dual eligibles. These people are disproportionately African-American, Latino, and female. Dual eligibles are more likely to have diabetes and strokes than other Medicare beneficiaries, and they use on average 10 or more prescription drugs. 
They include the most severely disabled Americans, physically and cognitively handicapped men and women of all ages, an elderly patient suffering from dementia and requiring full-time care. The government has not said exactly how many dual eligibles actively chose a plan, but the evidence we have suggests that very few did. Dual eligibles are able to switch plans at any time, but if few are actively choosing plans, we suspect that few are taking advantage of the flexible switching option. Random assignment can cause random harm to unlucky people placed in plans that don't fit their needs. For the drugs that dual eligibles take most often, and that are in categories covered by the law, plans vary considerably in their coverage, from as low as 76% to as high as 100%. This means that some dual eligibles were defaulted into a plan that did not cover the drugs they use most. They could switch, of course, but being human, most stayed with the plan that had been lovingly picked at random for them. And given the patchy drug access, it is not surprising that random plan defaults impaired people's health. In a recent survey of dual eligibles, 10% reported improved medication access, while more than 22% said they had stopped taking medications temporarily or permanently because of problems in managing the new plan. The government's official reason for rejecting intelligent assignment in favor of random assignment is that people's prescription needs change. Someone's past use is no guarantee of her future use. In the healthcare community, there has been a lot of head-scratching about this argument, especially for the elderly, who are often on several long-term medications. Last year's drug use is often an excellent predictor of next year's, and certainly it is a better predictor than picking a plan out of a hat. It seems somewhere between callous and irresponsible to assign plans without even looking at people's specific needs. Random assignment is almost inconsistent with the market-based philosophy of the plan. In markets, better products get a higher share, and most free market economists consider this a good feature. We do not think that every automobile manufacturer should get the same market share any more than we think that families should pick their cars at random. Why should we want randomness for insurance plans? How costly were the mistakes and misallocations caused by this random assignment? One way to examine this issue is to see how many people chose to switch plans after the first year. Every November there is an open enrollment period when participants can switch plans. Unfortunately, we do not know as much as we'd like to about plan switching because the government has not been very forthcoming about releasing the data. It did announce that during the open enrollment period for 2007, about 2.4 million, 10% of Part D enrollees, changed plans. But of those who changed, 1.1 million were low-income beneficiaries, most of whom were moved unilaterally by the government so that they would not have to pay increased premiums. That means that excluding dual eligibles, only 6% actively changed plans. We suspect that the percentage of active switchers is even lower if we include the entire population of enrollees. There are two possible interpretations of these low switching rates. One interpretation 
favored by defenders of the plan, and the one that would be correct if we were studying a population of econs, is that all is well. The wide variety of plans is handling diverse health conditions, and seniors have chosen the best plan for their needs. The second interpretation, more plausible if the participants are humans, is that inertia and status quo bias are keeping people from switching. How can we tell which interpretation is right? One way is by comparing the participants who actively chose their own plan with those who had a plan picked at random for them. For the latter group, there can be no presumption that the plan they started with is the best one. And the fact that we find low switching rates for both groups suggests that the second interpretation is right. Most participants seem to find that the burden of switching, the time and energy it takes to decide on the best plan, is just not worth the effort. Is it worth that effort? The answer depends on how varied the plans are and how costs differ depending on the set of drugs people use. Consider a comparative study of the prices of drugs covered by basic plans, the kind poor beneficiaries would be defaulted into, in three regions of the country. The study reported savings between $5 and $50 per drug per month when individuals are assigned to the lowest cost, best-fitting basic drug plan. More data comparing entire plans as opposed to individual drugs should be available soon, and we think they will confirm results that other academic teams are beginning to find. Kling's team has estimated almost a $700 annual difference between a randomly chosen plan and the lowest cost plan. Choosing the right plan, rather than a random plan, has the potential to save both seniors and the government a lot of money. If hundreds of dollars are at stake for every person, many seniors would find it worthwhile to spend at least an hour or two sorting out the best plan, much as they would in choosing a new washing machine or putter. Not user-friendly. Unfortunately, spending an hour or two is not going to get the job done. The chief tool people have to help choose a plan is the Medicare website. This will help people make competent decisions, said the head of federal Medicare offices. They'll have an unprecedented array of tools that will help them find a drug plan. They'll have an unprecedented array of tools that will help them find a drug plan. But there is an obvious problem with relying heavily on a website. Most seniors do not yet use the Internet let alone the Medicare website. And those who do are rarely web-savvy, though this will change over time. Most seniors get their information about Part D passively from mailings by insurers, the government, and groups like AARP. Those mailings are highly unlikely to contain personalized information, so the website is the best source for help. To whom does the job of navigating the site fall? To seniors' adult children, of course. An economist friend of ours, Katie Merrill, is one adult who does research on health coverage and took it upon herself to choose plans for both her elderly parents. She found that the task took hours, even for an expert like herself. Katie allowed us to see how painful choosing a plan would be by kindly providing a list of the drugs her mother takes. Thaler logged on to the Medicare Part D website and tried his luck. What 
a nightmare. Just to give one example, the site does not have a spell checker. If you type Xanax, Z-A-N-A-X, instead of Xanax, X-A-N-A-X, you don't get any help, unlike at Google, for example. This is a problem because drug names resemble strings of random letters, so typing errors are to be expected. Getting all the dosages right is also tricky. You need to know both the size of the pill, for example, 25 milligrams, and how frequently it is taken. The website assumes you take a generic drug, if it is available, and gives you the option of keeping the premium brand drug. Many people, however, take generics while calling them by their brand name, which requires paying close attention to every drug selection. Once a user manages to get all the data entered, the website offers three plan suggestions with annual cost estimates. Technophobic seniors can call 1-800-MEDICARE and have a customer service representative give them the three plan suggestions and prices, but no explanation is offered for how these plans have been chosen. Eventually, with help from Katie that bordered on psychotherapy, Thaler managed to get some answers, though not the same ones that Katie got. Still, because Thaler is nearing Medicare age himself, he thought perhaps someone younger would have an easier time of it. So he asked one of our graduate student research assistants to give it a try. Being younger and more patient helped, but he got yet another set of answers. We then pulled out all the stops and put the youngest and smartest member of our team on the job, our student intern and Team Jeopardy whiz, who was headed for a top college that fall. Even she, who normally finds everything easy, was befuddled at times in this process. And no two of us, though armed with the same data, ended up with the same cost estimates or the same recommended plans. Katie tells us we shouldn't feel bad. She used the exercise of picking a plan for her mom in a talk she gave to a group of experts in the field and found a similar range of different answers and comparable frustration. At first, we were stumped. But it turns out that even four econs couldn't have mimicked each other perfectly. We all got different estimates because prescription drug plans are constantly updating their drug prices. There is no guarantee that the cheapest plan for your mother today will be the cheapest plan for your mother tomorrow. In fact, Consumers Union has tracked price differences in five large states and found continuous monthly changes. Sometimes these fluctuations are only a few dollars, sometimes more. Nearly 40% of the 225 plans underwent changes of more than 5%, which can add up to several hundred dollars per year. Frequent price changes are one more hurdle for humans to jump. And in light of our experience, they can be a rude awakening to those who don't know about them. Did choosers make good choices? Not always. What is it like to pick a prescription drug plan? How hard is it to choose the right one? The short answer is really hard. For the sake of argument, ignore decisions about whether to enroll in Medicare Part D or whether to enroll in a standalone drug plan or a Medicare Advantage plan. 
Assume that you, like most enrollees, are picking a standalone plan. You'll need to compare plans along 15 major dimensions. True, the Medicare website tries to help seniors sort plans across some of these dimensions. But we have already pointed out the pain and suffering that accompanied using this website. And even if you arrive at the concluding page and see the three cheapest plans available, you shouldn't breathe easy. You will not be able to tell from the website whether prior authorization will be hard to obtain in your situation or what the quantity limit on a particular drug will be. This information is probably available only after you sign up for a plan and attempt to fill the particular prescription. Figuring out whether seniors are making good choices would require information about their health characteristics and their plans. Given the obvious concerns about privacy, the government has not released these data. But it apparently believes and even says that seniors are making good choices. We are not so sure. A good choice is one that meets a person's specific needs. In an experiment, the economist Daniel McFadden and his team have attempted to evaluate how good or bad seniors' choices turn out to be. McFadden's team members gave seniors a break. They tried to give them a reasonable chance of making a good choice. Seniors didn't have to worry about pharmacy networks and prior authorization. They were offered only four options. To make the choice even easier, a person's particular economic circumstances were also thrown out the window. The four plans offered were worth the same amount of money. They differed only in the level of protection provided as drug bills rose. Even in this simplified environment, a high percentage of seniors made poor choices among the four available plans because they failed to connect their choices to their actual health, prescription use, and attitude toward risk. In all, nearly two-thirds of enrollees... Nudge. Improving decisions about health, wealth, and happiness. By Richard H. Thaler and Cass R. Sunstein. Narrated by Lloyd James. Credit Cards. The credit card is a ubiquitous feature of modern life. It is nearly impossible to function in society without one. Try checking into a hotel, renting a car, or renting a set of golf clubs without a credit card. Good luck. Credit cards serve two functions. First, they provide a mode of payment in lieu of cash, and have largely replaced checks for that purpose in face-to-face -face transactions, thankfully, although occasionally you still get stuck behind someone in a grocery store checkout line who wants to write a check for a $7.37 purchase. The second purpose of a credit card is to provide a ready source of liquidity if you want to spend more than you currently have in cash. Debit cards, which look just like cards, serve only the first function because they are linked to a bank account and do not allow for borrowing unless linked also to a line of credit. Warning, some debit cards offer lines of credit at high fees. If you use a debit card to borrow, you should make sure that the fees you pay are lower than they would be with a credit card. Credit cards are blessedly convenient. Paying with a credit card is often faster than paying with cash and lets you avoid struggling with change. 
digging into your pocket to find the correct change, and managing the large jar of pennies at home are vexations from which you are liberated. Not to mention the frequent flyer miles. But if you are not careful, credit cards can be addicting. Consider these numbers. The Census Bureau reported that there were more than 1.4 billion credit cards in 2004 for 164 million cardholders, an average of 8.5 cards per cardholder. Currently, 115 million Americans carry a month-to-month credit card debt. In 1989, the average American family owed its credit card companies $2,697. By 2007, that number had grown to about $8,000. And these figures are probably too low because they are generally self-reported. Using Federal Reserve data, some researchers suggest that American households may have an average credit card debt of $12,000. At typical interest rates of 18% a year, that translates into more than $2,000 a year in interest payments alone. Looking back at the problems of self-control discussed in Chapter 3, we can see how credit cards create serious problems for some people. In the pre-credit card era, households were pretty much forced to use a pay-as-you-go accounting system. That is why people used jars of money labeled according to purpose, or payee. Now, if you don't have the cash to fill your car up with gas, there is always your credit card. Credit cards inhibit self-control in other ways. One 2001 study by Drazen Prelek and Duncan Simister found that people were willing to pay twice as much to bid on tickets to a Boston Celtics basketball game if they could pay with their credit card rather than cash. There is no telling how much money people pay with the cards in order to get those precious frequent flyer miles. And when the spending limit on one card is reached, there is always another card to use, or a new account to be opened using one of the solicitations that arrive almost daily in the mail, announcing that you have been pre-approved. Can libertarian paternalism help? As with mortgages, we think this is a perfect area for recap. We suggest that credit card companies should be required to send an annual statement, both hard copy and electronic, that lists and totals all the fees that have been incurred over the course of the year. This report would serve two purposes. First, credit card users could use the electronic version of the report to shop for better deals. By knowing their precise usage and fee payments, customers would get a better sense of what they are paying for. Here is one example. One way credit card companies have slyly raised prices is by reducing the number of days you have between the time you get your bill and the day your payment is due. If you miss that payment, you not only pay a penalty, but you also pay interest on all the purchases you make next month, even if you normally pay off your bill in full. For a heavy credit card user, such as a frequent business traveler, missing a $5,000 payment by one day can result in an extra payment of more than $100. Second, the report would make more salient to users just how much they are paying over the course of the year. Some credit cards now issue an annual summary of purchases listed by category, which can help for tax preparation. But the recap requirement would force the card issuers 
to include information on their own fees in this document. Often those fees are hidden. For example, if you make a purchase in a foreign currency, the credit card company tacks on a fee for converting the purchase into dollars, something that costs banks virtually nothing. On your recap statement, you would be told how much you paid for the privilege of using your card on your vacation to Mexico. Because interest on credit cards is not deductible, there is no particular reason for users to check how much they paid in interest last year on all their credit cards, and fees are likely to be buried and ignored altogether. Imagine the wake-up call for a credit card user who was told that over the past year he paid $2,153 in interest, $247 in late fees, and $57 in currency transaction fees. Some other nudges could help as well. For example, credit cards always mention the minimum payment you can make when you receive your monthly bill. This can serve as an anchor and as a nudge that this minimum payment is an appropriate amount. Similarly, credit card limits, which are nominally in place to limit spending, may serve as high anchors that actually encourage spending. Of course, because the minimum payments are tiny relative to the total bill, paying this amount just maximizes the interest payments over time. Credit card companies even make it hard to commit yourself to paying the card off in full each month. Try to set up an automatic payment feature with your credit card and your bank. Chances are the only default option offered is to pay the minimum payment, not the entire bill. We think that companies should be required to allow automatic payment of the full bill. We have covered a number of topics in this chapter, but the unifying message is simple. For mortgages, school loans, and credit cards, life is far more complicated than it needs to be, and people can be exploited. Often, it's best to ask people to take care of themselves, but when people borrow, Standard human frailties can lead to serious hardship and even disaster. Here, as elsewhere, government should respect freedom of choice, but with a few improvements in choice architecture, people would be far less likely to choose badly. Chapter 9. Privatizing Social Security, Smorgasbord Style in the 2000 U.S. presidential campaign, George W. Bush called for a partial privatization of the Social Security system. According to his plan, a portion of the payroll tax would be designated for individual savings accounts. At the same time that this issue was being debated in the United States, Sweden was launching a system similar to President Bush's proposal. Although Bush's plan did not get much attention in the early years of his administration, it resurfaced prominently in 2005. Though it failed in Congress, some version of this proposal is likely to be considered again before long, either in the United States or in other countries. Important lessons can be learned from the Swedish experience. Lessons, above all, about the limitations of any simple celebration of freedom of choice. We shall see that Sweden's officials did quite well on some aspects of their choice architecture, but made at least one important error that led its citizens to choose portfolios that are not nearly as good as they could have been. A better set of nudges would have helped.
By understanding why, we can learn a lot about Social Security reform and about much else besides. Design of the Swedish Privatization Plan If we were to pick a single phrase to characterize the design of the Swedish plan, it would be pro-choice. In fact, the plan is a good example of the just-maximize-choices strategy. Give people as many options as possible, and then let them do whatever they want. At almost every stage, the designers opted for a laissez-faire approach. In particular, the plan had the following key features. 1. Participants were allowed to form their own portfolios by selecting up to five funds from an approved list. 2. One fund was chosen, with some care, to be a default fund for anyone who, for whatever reason, did not make an active choice. 3. Participants were encouraged, via a massive advertising campaign, to choose their own portfolios, rather than rely on the default fund. 4. Any fund meeting certain fiduciary standards was allowed to enter the system. Thus, market entry determined the mix of funds from which participants could choose. As a result of this process, there were initially 456 available funds. As of August 14, 2007, there were 783 funds in the plan. But since inception, there have been more than 1,000 so some funds come and go rather rapidly. 5. Inform- we have emphasized that on the key issue of choosing a default, the designers of the Swedish plan did an excellent job. The default plan was selected with care, and we think many people outside of Sweden would invest in the fund if it were available. This outcome belies the notion that governments are inherently incapable of doing anything right. The worst feature of the Swedish plan was the decision to encourage participants to choose their own portfolios. In complex situations, the government might actually be able to provide some useful hints. Recall a main lesson from Part 1. If the underlying decision is difficult and unfamiliar, and if people do not get prompt feedback when they err, then it's legitimate, even good, to nudge a bit. In this context, it would have been better for the government to say something like this. We have designed a program that has a comprehensive set of funds for you to choose from. If you do not feel comfortable making this decision on your own, you could consult with an expert, or you could choose the default fund that has been designed by experts for people like you. The Swedish government seems to agree with us. It no longer actively encourages people to choose their own portfolios. If the United States ever adopts similar partial privatization of its own social security system, whether as an alternative to or a substitute for the traditional system, many lessons can usefully be learned from the Swedish experience. Because the U.S. economy is more than 30 times as big as Sweden's, a similar free entry system would probably generate thousands of funds. This might make those who believe in the just-maximize-choices mantra happy, but most humans would find choosing from such a long list bewildering. A better plan would start by following Sweden's lead of choosing a good default plan 
containing mostly indexed funds, with managers selected by competitive bidding. Participants would then be guided through a simplified choice process, preferably on the web. The process would start with a yes or no question. Do you want the default fund? For those who said yes, their task would be done, though of course they could always change their minds at a later date. Those who rejected the default would be offered a small set of blended funds, perhaps based on the age of the participant, again privately managed with competitive fees. Only participants who rejected all of these funds would get to the comprehensive list. Evidence from the private sector suggests that few participants would make use of the big list, but their right to do so would be fully protected. An examination of the Swedish experience offers a much broader lesson. The more choices you give people, the more help you need to provide. As we will see, that is a lesson that the people who designed the Medicare prescription drug program did not learn. Part 3. Health Libertarian paternalists see countless opportunities for improving people's health. Social influences could obviously be enlisted if most people think that most people are starting to avoid unhealthy foods or to exercise, more people will avoid unhealthy foods and will exercise. As we have seen, people who know obese people are more likely to be obese themselves. Weight loss can be contagious too. Framing matters. People are more likely to engage in self-examinations for skin and breast cancer if they are told not about the reduced risk if they do so, but about the increased risk if they fail to do so. Doctors are crucial choice architects, and with an understanding of how humans think, they could do far more to improve people's health and thus to lengthen their lives. We focus on three particular problems here. The first raises complex questions of choice architecture. The federal government now has an extremely expensive prescription drug plan for seniors, one that operates on the familiar premise that government should give people a lot of choices and then get out of the way. As we will see, the resulting program has major problems, in part because many people are unable to understand it. The second problem is the simplest. The United States could save a lot of lives if more people donated their organs. How can donation rates be increased? You will not be stunned to hear that a switch in the default rule would have a major impact. The third problem includes human health but extends even more broadly. What can be done to protect the environment? Nudges are not enough, but an understanding of their power offers some fresh answers to that question. Chapter 10. Prescription Drugs. Part D. For Daunting. Prescription drug coverage was a hot topic during the 2000 presidential campaign. As a solution, Democrat Al Gore proposed a classic government mandate. Gore wanted to add prescription drug coverage to Medicare in a single plan, assemble a panel of medical experts to work out the specifics, and offer the package to all seniors. Republican George W. Bush, in contrast, 
offer what might be considered a good example of the theme of his campaign, compassionate conservatism. Indeed, Bush tried to combine compassionate conservatism with a major role for free markets in the private sector. He offered seniors an expensive new entitlement program, but one that featured a wide variety of drug plans devised by private health care companies and that let consumers choose whether to join and which plan to pick. Three years later, President Bush's version passed on a narrow vote in Congress. The largest overhaul in Medicare's history, Bush's plan created a half-trillion-dollar federal subsidy for prescription drug coverage called Part D. The reason why we felt it was necessary to provide choices is because we want the system to meet the needs of the consumer, President Bush told a clubhouse of Florida seniors in 2006 with the plan's rollout underway. The more choices you have, the more likely it is you'll be able to find a program that suits your specific needs. In other words, one-size-fits-all is not a consumer-friendly program. And I believe in consumers. I believe in trusting people. President Bush's trust in American seniors left them with a great deal of decision-making responsibility. But this was no laissez-faire system. The national government imposed a lot of structure. Before consumers could even begin to choose, the government set minimum coverage requirements and approved all private plans. This system of constrained free choice might seem like a nice example of libertarian paternalism in action. And in fact, we think that on some dimensions, Bush was on the right track. As a health care delivery system, Part D met its planners' expectations reasonably well. As a piece of choice architecture, however, it suffered from a cumbersome design that impeded good decision-making. It offered a menu with lots of choices, which is fine, but it had four major defects. One, it gave participants little guidance to help them make the best selections from that menu. Two, its default option for most seniors was non-enrollment. Three, it chose a default at random for six million people who were automatically enrolled, and it actively resisted efforts to match people and plans based on their prescription drug histories. And four, it failed to serve the most vulnerable population, specifically the poor and the poorly educated. Do not misunderstand. Part D has done a lot of good. Contrary to the charges of the critics, it has not been an unmitigated disaster. But there is plenty of room for better choice architecture. Our discussion in this chapter will be fairly detailed. It is difficult to understand the program and what is wrong with it without a sense of the key choices and where they went sour. But if the four defects are kept in mind, the forest will not be lost for the trees. Design of Medicare Part D Before Part D, about half of all American seniors, approximately 21 million, had some form of prescription drug coverage through private plans or a government source, such as the Department of Veterans Affairs. Government officials had high hopes of covering the rest through Part D. The working principle was to provide seniors with as many federally approved choices as possible. The result was a policy with six key features. 1. 
For most people, Part D is a voluntary plan. You benefit only if you enroll in it. An exception applies to 6.2 million low-income seniors and disabled people who were previously covered by Medicaid, the government medical insurance program for the poor. These two groups are supposed to choose from a subset of the private plans, namely the cheapest and most basic plans meeting certain benchmarks. In 2007, states had between 5 and 20 basic plans. Anyone who does not make an active choice is enrolled randomly into one of these plans. 2. The initial enrollment period ran from November 2005 to May 2006, with open enrollment periods at the end of every subsequent year. Seniors who do not enroll when they become eligible and who lack a comparable private plan face a penalty on their premiums for every month they delay. 3. Seniors can enroll in a standalone prescription drug plan or a joint Medicare prescription drug plan. Standalone plans are commonly purchased by individuals who already have separate health insurance coverage through traditional Medicare, a pension plan, or a private employer. Joint plans are for those enrolled in Medicare Advantage, a special series of privately operated plans, HMOs, PPOs, and private fee-for-service plans, that tend to provide more benefits than the traditional Medicare program, but limit doctor choice. 4. Plans differ across states, from 45 standalone plans in Alaska to 66 in West Virginia and Pennsylvania. Most states offer between 50 and 60 standalone plans and between 15 and 142 joint plans. The total number of available plans has increased since the law was enacted. 5. During the initial enrollment period, the government, with help from such groups as AARP, formerly known as the American Association for Retired People, in 1999 the organization shortened its name to remove the R word from its title, sponsored a $400 million public awareness campaign encouraging people to choose a plan. Medicare officials, including the Secretary of Health and Human Services, traveled the country in a giant blue bus to promote the program. Companies also sent out their own advertisements. Currently, seniors are advised to rely on advice from people you know or trust, choose a plan you are already familiar with, or use a customized guide called the Medicare Prescription Drug Plan Finder on the Medicare website. And finally, six. Coverage starts with the first prescription a patient needs, but then stops for a while after the patient has spent a certain amount of money, only to start up again when another spending plateau is reached. In the popular press, this coverage gap is usually described as the donut hole. Because we know well that discussion of the details of Plan D can cause dangerous headaches, even without any mention of the donut hole, we will consign any further discussion of this issue to the end notes. Let's just say that no economist would ever recommend an insurance policy with this feature. If the people eligible for these plans were econs, none of these design features would be a problem. If consumers are up to this task, then their choices will ensure that the plans and insurers that succeed in the market are the ones that meet their needs, writes the Nobel Prize winner Daniel McFadden, a University of California Berkeley economist 
who has studied Part D extensively. However, if many are confused or confounded, the market will not get the signals it needs to work satisfactorily. With so many complex plans to choose from, it should not be a huge surprise that seniors have had a difficult time sending the right signals. Confusion Awaiting Clarity As the six-month window for enrolling in Part D was closing, people were struggling to sign up. Consider the experience of seniors in McAllen, Texas, known as the City of Palms. McAllen is a town of 100,000 people, located in the Rio Grande Valley near the Mexican border. A manufacturing hub for multinational corporations, McAllen is the kind of poor town, about one-fifth of the residents 65 and older live in poverty, that was intended to benefit hugely from Part D. To obtain those benefits, however, eligible residents first needed to wade through 47 prescription drug plans. Intellectually, the program is a good idea, said Dr. E. Linda Villarreal, a former president of the Hidalgo Star County Medical Society. But there's been total chaos and confusion among most of my patients, who do not understand the system and how to work it. Ramiro Barrera, a co-owner of Richard's Pharmacy in Mission, said, The new Medicare program is a full-time job. We are swamped with requests for help from beneficiaries. The experience in McAllen was hardly unique. Seniors everywhere were confused. So were their doctors and pharmacists. Together they overwhelmed Medicare hotlines set up to help people figure out the best plan for them. Critiquing Medicare Part D's complexity became so common that Saturday Night Live spoofed the maze of detail in a phony public service commercial. The commercial promised a simple and easy plan to tech-savvy seniors who had succeeded in completely mastering their computers, iPods, and satellite televisions. President Bush sympathized with the frustration but said that the program would ultimately be worth the pain. I knew that when we laid out the idea of giving seniors choices, it would create a little confusion for some, he told the Florida seniors. I mean, after all, up to now there hadn't been many choices in the system, and all of a sudden, for a senior who feels pretty good about things, here comes old George W., and all of a sudden 46 choices pop up. How are seniors expected to handle all those choices? President Bush urged them to have patience and to turn to private institutions for assistance. We encouraged all kinds of people to help, he said. AARP is helping. NAACP is helping. Sons and daughters are helping. Faith-based programs are helping people sort through the programs to design a program that meets their needs. I readily concede some seniors have said, There are so many choices, I don't think I want to participate. My advice is, there is plenty of help for you. The impulse here was commendable. But you have now read enough to know that offering people 46 choices and telling them to ask for help is likely to be about as good as no help at all. And in Medicare Part D's case, many of the groups meant to assist seniors were confused themselves. The confusion spread to medical professionals, who agreed with their patients that the number of plans in the current program bewildered everyone.
Others, such as AARP, decided to go into the business of offering insurance plans, as well as giving advice about which plan to select. A pretty obvious conflict of interest. In the end, getting seniors into a plan turned out to be not the biggest problem. Organizations were ultimately successful at signing up large numbers of beneficiaries. As of January 2007, fewer than 10% of all Medicare beneficiaries, about 4 million people, had no drug coverage, either through Part D or an equivalent private plan. One quarter of those in the plan were probably healthy enough that they did not need to enroll immediately. Their participation, however, was crucial to Part D's survival because they helped to subsidize sick seniors. To federal health officials, the high enrollment was a sign of undeniable success. To this extent, freedom of choice has worked. A nice point for those who reject, as we do, the idea that one size fits all. Overall, seniors seem happy about the program, as they should be, because it provides them with an enormous government subsidy. Since the passage of the new Medicare law, disapproval of the program has steadily fallen, while approval has risen, in an apparent tribute to rapid learning over time. In November 2005, just as seniors were getting their first taste of 40-plus plans, half of 1,800 seniors surveyed had an unfavorable view of the program, compared with 28% who viewed it favorably. By November 2006, the unfavorable rating had fallen to 34%, while the favorable rating had risen to 42%. When asked about their own personal experiences, three out of four held a very or somewhat positive view of Part D. Seeing these patterns, a vigorous defender of Part D could claim that as with any new program, participants underwent a sometimes painful educational process, but on the whole were ultimately satisfied with the plan they chose. Overwhelming majorities thought that they made good choices, though, for reasons to be developed shortly, we doubt that many had much basis for that evaluation. Of course, it is true that because of learning, once complicated choices become easier. But we think that there has been a lot less learning about Part D than a casual look suggests. For starters, the high enrollment rates were achieved in part because approximately two-thirds of seniors were easily or automatically enrolled through one of a variety of routes, employer or union plans, Medicaid, Veterans Affairs, or federal employee coverage, or the special, more comprehensive Medicare program known as Medicare Advantage. Advertising campaigns and media coverage certainly boosted awareness, but no one should read the statistics and conclude that 38 million seniors filled out a Part D application because the government asked them to do so. In addition, many people are still not enrolled in the program, even though it is clear that they should be. Four million uncovered Americans is a large number and studies suggest that this group is probably dominated by poorly educated people living just above the poverty line, and thus not eligible for Medicaid. In addition, one quarter of the 13.2 million seniors eligible for a low-income subsidy, again, most of them poorly educated and living alone, did not take advantage of it. Because coverage for this last group is practically free, 
when the subsidy is added in, 25% non-enrollment is disturbingly high. Even when people do elect to enroll, an abundance of choice can overwhelm them. Since the new Medicare law passed, seniors have consistently told interviewers that they find Part D dumbfounding. After a year of experience in the program, only about one in ten said it was working well and needed no real changes. In November 2006, once again, with a year of experience and knowledge, 73% of seniors said Part D was too complicated, and 60% agreed with the statement that an unnamed party, most likely the government, should select a handful of plans so seniors have an easier time choosing. The consensus of the medical community was even stronger. More than 90% of both doctors and pharmacists who had been bombarded with patient questions throughout the enrollment period agreed that the program was too complicated. Information about the funds, including fees, past performance, and risk, was provided in book form to all participants. And finally, six. Funds, except for the default fund, were permitted to advertise to attract money. If Swedish citizens were all econs, none of these design choices would be controversial. The combination of free entry, unfettered competition, and lots of choices seems great. But if Swedes are humans, then maximizing choice may not lead to the best possible outcome. As it turns out, it didn't. The Default Fund There are two sets of issues relating to the default fund. What should be in the portfolio, and what status should it get from the government? That is, does the government want to encourage people to take up the fund, to discourage them from doing so, or what? Here are a few of the many possible options that might have been selected. A. Participants are given no choice. The default fund is the only fund offered. B. A default is picked, but its selection is discouraged. C. A default is picked, and its selection is encouraged. D. A default is picked, and its selection is neither encouraged nor discouraged. And E. Required choosing. There is no default option. Participants must make an active choice, or they forfeit their contributions. Which of these would a good choice architect select? That depends on the architect's level of confidence and the ability and willingness of the participants to do a good job of choosing portfolios on their own. Option A is hardly a nudge. It eliminates all choice, and so is inconsistent with libertarian paternalism. We don't recommend it. At the other extreme... Plan designers could avoid picking a default fund entirely by forcing everyone to choose a portfolio for themselves. Option E required choosing. If the designers are confident that people will do a good job picking portfolios for themselves, then they might consider this policy. Although required choosing can be attractive in some domains, we think that the Swedish government was right not to insist on it in this particular setting. Inevitably, some participants will fail to respond to attempts to reach them. Maybe because they are out of the country, ill, preoccupied, unable to communicate, or just clueless. 
Cutting such people off from all benefits is harsh, and probably unacceptable as a matter of politics or principle. In any case, it isn't easy to choose among more than 400 funds. Why should a government force its citizens to make that choice when some would prefer to rely on what experts say, as captured in the default? So we are left with the three middle options. If we are to have a default option as well as other choices, should we encourage or discourage its use? Clearly there is a wide variety of choices along the continuum, from strongly discouraging the default to strongly encouraging it. What's best? Option D has obvious appeal. Simply designate a default but neither encourage nor discourage it. But it is an illusion to think that this alternative fully solves the problem. What does it mean to be neutral? If we notify people that the plan was designed by experts and has low fees, both true about the actual default chosen, does this constitute encouragement? We don't mean to split hairs here. Our point is simply that designers will have to make a decision about how to describe the default plan, and these decisions will help determine the market share this plan attracts. In analyzing the middle options, we need to know something about the competence of those who design the default and the competence and diversity of those who might depart from it. If the designers are terrific, if the default fits all, and if the choosers are likely to blunder, then it might make sense to encourage people to select the default. If the designers are essentially guessing, if the choosers know a lot, and if the situations of different choosers are relevantly different, then it might be best to err on the side of official neutrality. In any case, the Swedish plan adopted a version of Plan B. Participants were actively encouraged to choose their own portfolios via an extensive advertising campaign. This advertising effort seems to have had the desired effect because two-thirds of participants did select portfolios on their own. Participants were more likely to make active choices if they had more money at stake and, holding money constant, women and younger participants were more likely to make active choices. We have a theory about why women were more likely to make active choices. We think that women were less likely to lose the enrollment forms and more likely to remember to mail them in. We admit to having no data to support this theory and plead guilty to the possibility that we are being overly influenced via the availability of bias by the fact that our significant others are considerably more organized than we are. Of course, one-third of the participants ended up with the default fund, and that figure might well seem high. It was, in fact, the largest market share of any fund. But the government campaigned hard to get people to choose actively, and a sense of the impact of the campaign can be inferred by what has occurred in the years since the plan was started. The upshot is that as the government's campaign diminished in intensity, people became significantly less likely to choose their own portfolios. Here are a few details. When the plan was launched in the spring of 2000, every participant who was then in the workforce was asked to choose a portfolio. In the years following the launch, new workers, mostly young people, have joined the plan, and they were also asked to choose a portfolio. But soon after the initial enrollment period, 
the government ended its advertising campaign, encouraging participants to make an active choice. Moreover, private funds themselves greatly reduced their advertising aimed at attracting investments. Probably as a result of both of these factors, the proportion of people choosing their own portfolios fell as well. For those workers joining the plan in April 2006, the most recent enrollment period for which we have data, only 8% selected their own portfolios. In fact, the purchase of active choosers has declined steadily, from 17.6% in 2001, the first year after the launch. Because these new participants are primarily young workers, this percentage is most usefully compared with that of workers who were under age 22 when the plan was launched in 2000. That group chose their own portfolios 56.7% of the time in 2000, much more than now. Did active choosers make good choices? Were people made better off by choosing their own portfolios? Of course, we do not have any way of knowing the preferences of individual participants, and we also do not know what assets they may be holding outside the social security system, so it is not possible for us to say anything definitive about how good a job they did picking a portfolio. But we can nonetheless learn a lot by comparing the portfolios people actively constructed with a default fund on dimensions that sensible investors should value, such as fees, risk, and performance. To make a long story short, the active choosers didn't do so great. The default fund appears to have been chosen with some care. The asset allocation is 65% foreign, that is non-Swedish, stocks, 17% Swedish stocks, 10% fixed income securities, bonds, 4% hedge funds, and 4% private equity. Across all asset classes, 60% of the funds are managed passively, meaning that the portfolio managers are simply buying an index of stocks and not trying to beat the market. One good thing about index funds is that they are cheap. The fees they charge investors are much lower than those charged by funds that try to beat the market. Those low fees for the index funds help keep the costs in the default fund very low, 0.17%. This means that for every $100 invested, the investor is charged $0.17 cents per year. Overall, most experts would consider this fund to be very well designed. To see how the active choosers did as a group, we can examine the comparable figures for the aggregate portfolio selected initially by the participants who made their own choices. There are three points of interest in this comparison. First, Although the allocation to stocks in the default plan was quite high, it is even higher in the portfolios actively chosen, 96.2%. People probably chose to invest so heavily in stocks because the stock market had been booming for the previous few years. Second, the active choosers selected to invest nearly half of their money, 48.2%, in the stocks of Swedish companies. This reflects the well-known tendency of investors to buy stocks from their home country, something that economists refer to as the home bias. Of course, you might think that investing at home makes sense. Buy what you know. But when it comes to investing, 
buying what you think you know does not necessarily make sense. As we saw in the previous chapter, employees buying shares of the company for which they work show no ability to make profitable trading decisions. Consider the following fact. Sweden accounts for approximately 1% of the world economy. A rational investor in the United States or Japan would invest about 1% of his assets in Swedish stocks. Can it make sense for Swedish investors to invest 48 times more? No. If you are worried about currency risk, that's a problem easily solved. And in fact, the default fund did solve it by hedging in the currency markets, essentially a type of insurance. Third, only 4.1% of the funds in the selected portfolios were indexed. As a result, the fees paid by the active choosers are much higher, 0.77% compared with the 0.17% charged by the default fund. This means that if two people invested $10,000 each, the active investor is paying $60 a year more in fees than the one who took the default portfolio. Over time, these fees add up. The fees we report here are the ones that were advertised. Later, some funds offered discounts, so fees fell. In summary, those who selected portfolios for themselves selected a higher equity exposure, more active management, much more local concentration, and higher fees. At the time these investments were made, it would have been hard to make the case that the actively selected portfolios were better investments than the default fund. And although a few years of returns do not prove anything, not only was the default fund designed better at the start, but it has also performed better. Because of the decline in the market that followed the launch of this plan, investors did not do well for the first three years, from October 31st, 2000, through October 31st, 2003. But those who invested in the default fund suffered less. The default fund lost 29.9% in those three years, while the average portfolio of those participants who picked their funds actively lost 39.6%. In subsequent years, the default fund has continued to outperform people's choices. Through July 2007, the default fund is up 21.5%, while the average actively managed portfolio is up only 5.1%. Indeed, the performance of the default fund has been so good over this period that the fund rating service, Morningstar, has given the fund its highest five-star rating, compared with other global funds since 2003. In contrast, the aggregate portfolio selected by participants would probably have received three stars if it were considered a single global fund. An interesting feature of the Swedish experience is that the launch of the fund occurred just as the bull market in stocks and the bubble in technology stocks was ending. Although it is impossible to specify the precise effect of this accident of timing on people's choices, or even on the decision to launch the privatization program, the data provides some strong hints. We have already noted that the actively chosen portfolios had more than 96% of their money in stocks. Had the launch occurred just two years later, the proportion invested in stocks would almost certainly have been lower. 
As we saw in Chapter 8, individual investors tend to be trend followers, rather than good forecasters, in their asset allocation decisions. In a period in which technology stocks had been soaring, it is not surprising that the investments were also tilted toward those stocks. To give one illustrative example, the fund that attracted the largest market share, aside from the default fund, was Robar Actifond Contura, which received 4.2% of the investment pool. This is a huge market share. Keep in mind that there were 456 funds, and that one-third of the money went into the default fund. Robar Actifond Contura invested primarily in technology and healthcare stocks in Sweden and elsewhere. Over the five-year period leading up to the choice, its value increased by 534.2%, the highest of all the funds in the pool. In the first three years after the launch of this program, it lost 69.5% of its value. In the subsequent three years, the returns have continued to be volatile. In retrospect, it cannot be a surprise that a fund like Robar Actifond Contura would get a large percentage of the investments in the pool. Think about what people are being asked to do. They receive a book that lists the returns for 456 funds over various time horizons, along with a lot of other important information, involving fees and risk, that they are not well equipped to understand. The one thing they are probably sure of is that high returns are good. Of course, these are past returns, but investors have traditionally had trouble distinguishing between past returns and forecasts of future returns. We can't help but imagine the following conversation going on over a kitchen table somewhere in Sweden between Mr. and Ms. Svensson. Mr. Svensson. Wilma, what are you doing with that book? Ms. Svensson. I am looking for the best fund to invest in, Bjorn, and I think I just found it. Robar Actifon Contura is the winner. It is up 534% over the past five years. If we invest in this, we can retire to Mallorca. Mr. Svensson. Yeah, whatever. Can you pass the gravlocks? Because the investments of participants are influenced by recent returns, the timing of the launch of the program can have a strong impact on people's choices. This effect can be long-lasting because only a tiny percentage of participants decide to alter their portfolios. Status quo bias is alive and well in Sweden. In the first three years, the percentage of participants who made at least one change to their portfolios during the year was only 1.7, 2.7, and 3.1, respectively. This is similar to the inertia found in U.S. 401k plans. The combination of undue attention paid to recent returns and inertia in managing the portfolio thereafter means that the accident of timing, when the new system is launched, can end up having a profound impact on the investments that participants choose. In fact, accident of timing may be the wrong phrase, because a privatization plan seems most likely to be approved after a long bull market. Witness the decline in political support for the Bush plan after the bear market of 2001 and 2002. Political judgments no less than investment decisions can be driven by recent, available 
events. Advertising The decision to allow funds to advertise does not seem particularly controversial. In fact, given the rest of the design of this system, it is hard to imagine an advertising ban. If funds are free to enter this market, then presumably they should be free to court customers by all legal means, which naturally include truthful advertising. Still, it is interesting to see what effect advertising had on this market. What should we expect? Consider two extreme dream scenarios. In the first dream, one being dreamt by a free market economist with a peaceful smile on his face, advertisers are helping to educate consumers by explaining the benefits of lower costs, diversification, and long-run investing, as well as the folly of extrapolating recent returns into the future. In this dream, ads help each consumer discover her own ideal location on what economists call the efficient frontier, the place all rational investors want to find. In other words, the advertising helps consumers make better, smarter choices. The other dream is more of a nightmare, one that keeps psychologists and behavioral economists tossing and turning. In this dream, advertisers are encouraging participants to think big, not to settle for average by indexing, and to think of investing as a way to get rich. In this nightmare, ads almost never mention fees, but they do talk a lot about past performance, even though there is essentially no evidence that past performance predicts future performance. People who like to bet on sporting events will recognize a parallel in advertisements telling people about locks on upcoming games and about the amazing and nearly infallible forecasts of, say, the past three weeks. How did reality turn out? A typical ad showed the actor Harrison Ford, of Star Wars and Indiana Jones fame, plugging a Swedish fund company's products. According to the ad copy, Harrison Ford can help you pick a better pension. We are not sure which of Ford's roles qualifies him to provide this advice. We do know that Indiana Jones is depicted as a professor from the University of Chicago, but, alas, he was not in the business school or the economics department. More generally, a 2007 study by Henrik Kronkvist shows that the ads resembled the nightmare more than the happy dream. Only a small portion of fund advertising can be construed as directly informative about characteristics relevant for rational investors, such as funds' fees. And while funds heavily advertised past returns for those funds that had high returns, such ads in no way forecasted good future returns. Nevertheless, fund advertising did strongly affect investors' portfolio choices. It steered people into portfolios with lower expected returns because of higher fees and higher risk through a higher exposure to equities, more active management, more hot sectors, and more home bias. Doing Badly Without Nudges The tale of privatization of Social Security in Sweden is highly revealing. The basic problem is that government planners did not choose the best-choice architecture. 
Instead, they relied on a kind of dogmatic commitment to the just-maximize-choices mantra, in a way that led to predictable effects from availability bias and inertia. Better choice architecture could have helped.